Is there any greater pain like family pain? And is there any greater joy like family joy? Nothing gets our attention quicker than family drama or family scandal. Nothing just wakes you up in the middle of the night or uh, on your way home from work or in the middle of the day like family problems, family issues, family struggles. In Hosea, God wants us to feel that kind of tension. He wants us to focus our attention. And he wants to follow us to follow him. And he wants to see, for us to see how fantastically God comes for wayward people, filled with family drama and scandal. Last week we started a series on. Hosea, and I just want to remind you, if you weren't here or uh, if you were here, why we are going to spend the next eight weeks on the book of Hosea. First of all, one of the reasons why we're doing it is because it says in 2 Timothy that all Scripture is profitable. All Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for teaching, for correction, for instruction. So it's good for us. All Scripture is for us to learn from. The Old Testament, it says in Romans, was written for our endurance and for our hope. And also, Hosea is a powerful portrait of the grace and mercy of God. I don't know if you have memorized Hosea or if you've never read it in a long, long time. It is a, it's, a, it's a book we should know. It is um, called one of the minor prophets, but it doesn't, it's only because it's shorter than some of the other prophets, not because of it's less important. But it's another reason why we want to do it, because it is a portrait of our own fallenness and our own reminder to be of faithfulness that we need to be in God through Christ. Hosea fits in, Bible, in the scriptures this way. About, uh, it's written about 700 years before Jesus came to earth, about 200 years before this, the nation of Israel, God's called out people, had separated the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Uh, the nation of Israel was the 10 northern tribes who basically did not follow after God most of the time. Uh, Judah, the, the, the tribe of the south, was sometimes more likely to follow after God, but Hosea is speaking to the northern tribes, to the people of Israel, the area of Samaria, and telling them that actually judgment is coming. They, they are going to be judged. Exile is coming. They are going to be captured by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and they will be in captivity. But, but God has been very gracious already up to this point. He sent Elijah. He sent Elisha. He sent Jonah. He sent Amos saying the same thing, return and follow after me. They haven't done it, and God said, judgment's coming. So he sent Hosea, and he sent this to let them know and to warn them of this truth. So how should we look at the book of Hosea? We can look at it like a window and think that's some interesting history from seven, almost 1,000, over 1,500 years ago. That, that could be an interesting window if you're into history. That's not how we should look at the book of Hosea. We need to look at the book of Hosea as a mirror. We need to see that in the story of the prophet Hosea, who God called to marry a woman who would be a prostitute, that we need to see ourselves as gomers. We are the ones that often fall away. We commit spiritual adultery. So as you look at the book of Hosea for the next few weeks, don't look at it as just this window into the past. It's in the Bible. It's there to help us to look at it as a mirror, to see ourselves, to see 
how we should see ourselves, see how God sees ourselves, but also be reminded that even though we are Gomer, there is a greater one than Hosea, Jesus, who we have for us. And Jesus is our Hosea. So as we look at it, we need to see it as a mirror. And, and when should we look at it? We should look at it now. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know where you are spiritually and what you're doing. Some of you, I feel that I do. But Hosea is written as a, as a, it's a warning. It's a prophetic book. It's to warn the nation of people. It's a, it's a call to action. It's not just something you're supposed to read and not respond to. It is a prophetic call to action. So you may be here right now and just be like, I'm going to say no to God. You need to listen to the book of Hosea. You say, I'm, I'm not sure I should listen to God. You need to listen to the book of Hosea. You just say, I'm just kind of numb. I, I, I'm a little bored spiritually. Then you need to listen to the book of Hosea. Or you say, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty good. I mean, I want people to notice me. I'm better than most of the people in the world. Then you need to listen to the book of Hosea. Or you may be here and say, I just really want to know God. Then you need to listen to the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea is a reminder to us, like the old spiritual, it's a mirror for us. It's, it's, it's me, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my brother, not my sister, not my mother, not my father, but it's me, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And also like the old hymn, if we're honest with ourselves, we are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. This is the picture of where Homer, Hosea, and Gomer and this family is in chapter 2. And it is, starts out positively. And we need to see and notice this morning, first of all, just God's profound pain, his profound pain because of his love for people. Verses 1 through 5 just show us this is how profoundly the pain of God is for people who go wayward. He, he wants us to feel that when you read this book. That's why it's very graphic. He wants us to know this, this is how he feels about people that he loves. And verse 1 says, Say to your brothers, you are my people, and, you, and to your sisters, you have received mercy, which he, Hosea married Gomer, and they had three children. We're not sure if all of them were actually Hosea's because Gomer went off and prostituted herself, but he named them three different names. They sound like names from the Kentucky Derby yesterday, but they actually were Jezreel, no mercy, and, and, and you're not, and not my child. Those, those are all these different names because they meant something as a warning to people to look at this light, real life and to see what God's really saying, and to use the prophet Hosea to do that. And then at the end of this, after God said he was going to start restoring them, he says, say to your brothers, you are my people, and say to your sisters, you have received mercy. God loves people. God loves you. You're wanted. God wants this relationship, and God started the relationship with the nation of Israel many years ago, and he, and he painted it as a covenant marriage picture, that the God's the husband, the nation, the people of God were the wife, and that's how it was always painted and pictured, and the people of God were to be committed to their God, to their spouse, and they had not been. For over 200 years, they had been following after other gods, and God wanted them, but their sin kept abounding 
And then God says to his people, listen, judgment's coming. And he wants us to feel the hurt of the waywardness. Verse 2 says, plead with your mother, for she is not my wife. It's like he's talking to their kids. He's like, this marriage isn't working anymore. Your mom's gone off and prostituted herself. I can't talk to her. She's not talking to me. If there's any help, you guys go talk to her. Do an intervention. Try to get your mom back. See how far she has come. It hurts. Plead with your mother. It's like a court case even. Like this is, this is a, go to your mother with real confrontation. Plead with her for she is not my wife and I am not my husband. That she Plead with her that she put her whoring away from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. He, he, he is... Trying to picture this marriage that has fallen apart, and God's saying, this picture of marriage is how it is with him and the nation of Israel. They, they, they keep going away from him, and it is heartbreaking, and waywardness hurts. This is the picture. The picture of the nation of Israel was they were supposed to have no other gods before him. God was like a jealous husband. Follow after me. I will take care of you. I will supply your needs. And and the people of God said, no, we'll find somebody else to take care of our needs, just like Gomer did to Hosea. And waywardness, waywardness hurts. If you've been in a marriage situation, you know it hurts. If you have a child that's wayward, you you know it hurts. And, And you'd like to shake it sometime and think like, if I could just put them out of my mind and not think about it. It wouldn't hurt so bad. But it's family, and it hurts. I heard recently someone who just marriage broke up and they wrote this, it is brutal and heart-crushing to constantly feel the hurtful choices of someone that you love. This is how God feels about his people. Waywardness hurts, but there's a cost with waywardness. God says, intercede, plead with them. But this marriage is, is, is done. There's a separation that took place between Hosea and Gomer. He says, if not, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her thirst. There's consequences to waywardness. There's consequences to sin. There's consequences to bad choices and not following after God, and they can be for generations. Some of you understand that, and you've been rescued out of some of that, but you are, as a believer in your family, trying to stop some of the generational consequences of people who have gone against God and been wayward. There are consequences to waywardness, and always through this, waywardness just corrupts us. It, it, it corrupts, verse 5 says, For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, and my drink. It's absolutely corrupting. This was the attitude. This marriage that Hosea and Gomer had, they'd worked on it. There's been adultery. There's been prostitution. Hosea stuck with her. Hosea stuck with her. And finally, she says, it's, it's too much. We're going to have to separate, plead with her. There's consequences to this if this continues. And the response of Gomer was this. I will go after my lovers, which was the response of the nation of Israel to these pleas. God's pleading, and they're like, no, we'll, we'll still keep following after other 
gods. And the god that they were following after was the god of Baal. And understand the situation, we have to understand a little bit about Baal. Baal was the god of the Canaanites who was considered to be, they would call him owner and owner of the land. They would call him Lord. He was the greatest of their gods. And he was seen as the source of all fertility. And the, the worship would, of him would be to say, if you worship Baal, then because he's about fertility and you are in an agricultural culture, you need rain, you need the plants to to grow, so they thought, hmm, so we could follow God, who had us in the wilderness for almost 40 years, wasn't really a farmer, and now we got this God who's a God of Baal, and now we're in a new land where they have to, we have to farm. Should we trust God, or should we trust this God? And what the nation of Israel did was they tried to follow both, and mostly they followed Baal. And they would try to follow Baal, because they thought by following Baal, he would fertilize the land, they would have crops. It also turned into uh, to, um, just sensuality and ritualistic prostitution because this was the god of fertility. And what Baal worship did was it combined two things together. It combined this natural desire that we all need, we all feel, these, these romantic sexual desires which are natural and God-given, and then it con con also connected normal needs. We need food, we need land. And together it was so compelling to the nation of Israel that they were pulled into it. It was extremely immoral. It was extremely wicked. It came with great corruptedness. This is why the Bible says in Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. We're supposed to put it away. Listen, are there some things in your life that you need to put away when it comes to those areas. You need to pull off your walls. You need to put your phone away. God took this very seriously, and he still takes it very seriously. Today, idolatry is looking for the right things from the wrong source, and anything can become an idol. An idol is anything apart from Jesus that we believe that we need to make us happy, but they never actually do. The more we try to deal with our own idols apart from God, they, they, they actually can take over us and they start consuming us, just like Gomer's idols started to consume her. Ed Welch said this, so it is with modern idolatry as well. We don't want to be ruled by alcohol, drugs, sex, gambling, food, or anything. No, we want these substances or activities to give us what we want. Good feelings, a better self-image, a sense of power, whatever our heart is craving. Idols, however, do not cooperate. Rather than mastering our idols, we become enslaved by them and begin to look like them and begin to look to them. Idolaters lose their spiritual moorings, controlled by the lure of the sirens. This is the way to feel good, pleasure, belonging, a better self-image. But they are doomed to be destroyed on the rocks. Any idol that we all put up in our hearts are idol-making factories. They will destroy us. And this is what was happening to the nation of Israel. This is what was happening in real life to Hosea and Gomer in their relationships. Sin is devastating. That's the picture. There's more we could say. It's just devastating. Sin is more than breaking God's rules. It's breaking God's heart. That's what he's trying to convey. 
Sin is more than breaking God's rules. It breaks God's heart. God's pain, though, does not hold back his love. You may have run after so many idols all your life. You may be running after idols now and feel like it's just too late now. I've gone too far. The reality is God's love for you, as painful and as wayward as it may be, he still pursues after you. He does not hold back his love. Consequences will come, but he doesn't hold back his love. James Boyce said in the Bible, God weeps for his people, yearns for them, works for their deliverance. God grieves because now the people have forsaken him. But God does not give up. He works to turn sorrow into joy and tragedy and the tragedy of unfaithfulness into the triumph of love. How does he do that? How does God take wayward people that he loves and call him back to the, himself? What is the means that he does it? In verses 6 through 13, show us it's, it's the, the way he does it, God has very practical means of pursuing people. It says, therefore, because she's not turning back, because she's chosen other gods, because the nation of Israel is not turning back to God, because they've chosen other gods, perhaps maybe you are not turning back right now, and you know you should follow after God. Here's how God works to get people back to him. He says, therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her path. One of the ways that God tries to practically bring people back is by putting up a hedge of thorns or just sharp stabs. He did this with David when David wanted to commit adultery with Bathsheba. And he said, go find that beautiful woman, bring her in. And David's men said, isn't she the wife of Uriah? That was a hedge for David. That was supposed to be enough to say, oh, right, she's married, she's hands off. But David didn't follow that hedge. Sometimes that's what it takes. God will put up a hedge of thorns in our life. He'll put up a wall, a strong obstacle. Some of you have experienced this, maybe all of you. You, you. you knew you shouldn't go someplace. You had this intention to go someplace. But God in his grace actually had somebody show up right when you were going to go sin. Or something happened right when you, and it just couldn't happen. You, you, you wanted to, but you couldn't because God put a wall in the way. That was his mercy on you to try to protect you to try to get you to turn. He puts up these hedge of thorns, these sharp stabs or strong obstacles. God wants to frustrate your plans. And it's for your good, because his goodness is meant to lead you to repentance. Romans 2.4 says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? Listen. If you've had a desire to go one way, and it just seems like there's obstacle after obstacle after obstacle, maybe it's God saying, that's an idol that you need to kill. That's an idol that you don't need to go that way. And he's putting up these little sharp stabs, little walls as a kindness for you so that you would turn away. That's one way God does it. Another way, I call it, he not only does a hedge of thorns, but I call it the, a hologram treatment. You know what a hologram is? It, it looks real, but it's really not there. This is what happened 
in verse 7. He said, she shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall, she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. God will sometimes say, hey, listen, I, I tried to give you a little hedge of thorns. You went your own way, and, and now I'm just going to let you go. I, I'm going I'm to let you go find it yourself. And, and he, you, all of a sudden it feels free. I can do whatever I want. God doesn't seem to care. It seems like there's some peace about sinning. And all along, God's just saying, go find your hologram. Search for it, but there's, you're, you're going to be blind. You're not going to find the satisfaction that you're looking for. Keep looking. Or it says in verse 8, he says, And she did not know that it was he that gave her the grain, the oil. There was this brokenness. They did not want her. She says at the bottom of verse 7, Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. God says, go, and you're going to find blindness. You're going to find brokenness, just like the prodigal son who came to himself after he's eaten with the pigs. And he said, well, I should go back and work for dad because it's a little bit better than this. God, God will let you do that. He'll, he'll lead you to blindness. He'll lead you to brokenness. And he'll lead you to even disappointment. And God says, listen, this is what I'm going to do. If they don't turn, he says, therefore, I will take back my grain and its time, my wine and its season, and I will take back my wool and my flax. It wasn't Baal that was taking care of the nation of Israel. It was God all along. It's not your idols or yourself that's guiding your life. It's God who's sovereignly in control. Why does God do this? Why does he put up a hedge of thorns? Why does he leave us in this, these, let us have these hologram treatments where we think we're finally going to be free and then we find out we get there it's actually there's nothing there it didn't satisfy us like we thought it would satisfy us it actually brought brokenness and great bitter disappointment why does he do that because it says in verse 13 that he's going to he's going to bring them back to the wilderness he's going to take them to the wilderness why would he want to do that? Sometimes God takes us to the wilderness because in the wilderness, there's nothing there. And you're very dependent. And so you have to be very humble. And then you can possibly hear him speak. The wilderness can be a place where you can actually be helped. So if you've been going your own way, trying to figure out all of life on your own. It's been sharp stabs and strong walls and disappointment, no satisfaction. Those all could have been God's means, not of letting you go, but of pursuing you. So that he can bring you to this wilderness place. And if you are still, you'll hear his gentle voice. Because he passionately pursues people. It says in Hebrews 12, my son, do not regret lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. If God's convicted you of something and you feel convicted or he's revealing something to you, don't let that pass. Because if you don't turn, he may let you pass. And the Holy Spirit's voice is going to get softer and softer. And there's no guarantee you're going to hear it again. 
It's the mercy of God to put up walls and thorns to let you have blindness and dissatisfaction with your sin. And in the wilderness, you may be able to hear. He does something unbelievable at the end of that. There's been three therefores in this passage. This is what happens, therefore this, this is going to happen. This happened, therefore this is going to happen. But the third therefore in verse 14 totally flips everything. It says, therefore, behold, I will allure her. God just said he's going to strip everything away from them. He's going to take everything away from the, the people of the nation of Israel. And then he says, therefore, behold, I will allure her. The therefore is there for all who find themselves like Gomer. There's hope in that. When I was getting ready for this, I couldn't remember who wrote the song. Uh, it's, it's, it's me, oh me, it's, it's, it's me standing in the need of prayer. So I asked Siri, and I said just that phrase, you know. Um, it's me, it's me, it's me, oh me, standing in the need of prayer. And Siri said, I'm sorry. That was her answer. That doesn't help me. I appreciate you feel bad for me, Siri, but I need some help. It's me, it's me, it's me, Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And this is what God does in those situations. If anybody recognizes themselves and sees in the mirror that I am the one, I, I'm the one that runs away from God. God doesn't run away from me. I'm Gomer. What's our help in that? Here's the promise of hope that God gives. He goes, therefore, behold, I will allure her. And he gives a whole list of things he's going to do. I'll bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. It's totally different now. This, this wilderness is different from the wilderness of just nothingness. The nation of Israel left Egypt and they were brought into the wilderness. And that's where God said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Do any of you still live in your first apartment after you got married? Anybody? You know why? Because it was a dump. <laughs> you, you, you didn't want to keep living there. You, you, if you, you don't want to go back to your first apartment, your, your little trailer. Uh, but you may not want to still live there now. But if you want to remember the good days of your marriage, the good times, you, you go back and think about, remember that little trailer we had? Remember that time? It stirs up the emotions again. This is what God's doing with his people. He goes, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness, and I'm going to speak tenderly to her. I'm going to show people how much I love them. I'm going to bring them back to where we met the first time, where we got married, in the wilderness. I'm going to tell them. I'm going to remind them of all the good things that we had. And then he says in verse 15, and I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Achor was where Achan stole the land and the people of Israel were devastated and it was a nasty place. And God says, I'm going to take that nasty thing and make it now not a terrible place to be, but an open door to move forward. This is what God does when people change and follow after him. God can remind you of the goodness of who he is. He can also remove from you all past hurts. He can take years of waste for God and just remove it for you and make those years of waste a door of hope. In verse 17, he says, for I will remove the names of the bales from her mouth. 
that they remember them no more. You think, oh, this burden of my sin is going to be with me forever. No, it doesn't have to be. God says, if you will turn, the promise of hope is that I, will, I can show you how much I love you. I can remove past hurts and what you thought was wasted. I, I can remove it so it seems like it never even happened. It was just a faint, I, I, I can't even believe it was like this way. There's a guy named Christopher Yon who's he lived an extremely immoral lifestyle. He's a professor in Moody. I was sitting in his session one time. He abandoned God, abandoned faith, went completely deviant lifestyle. And he's telling a story, and as he tells the story of his testimony, he's showing pictures of his past life, picture after picture. And the pictures from the past and what he looks like now are so drastically different, it didn't even look like the same person. This is what God does in people's lives. He can remind, remove, he restores But the greatest thing of all is the promise of hope that God offers is that he just remains. He says, I will have mercy on the one I said there would be no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. The greatest hope that we have is that God remains. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. When the Bible says that Jesus was reviled and he reviled not again means that when you go waywardly and you disrespect God and you run from God and you think that I've reviled God, he'll never take me back. It's not true. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's his promise. That's his gift of hope for wayward people. God pursues you. God wants to pursue you. He wants you to lay down whatever sin pops to your mind this morning. He wants you to put it away. So what do they do with this? How do we apply it today? First, repent. If you see in yourself Gomer or Gomer tendencies and God's revealed something to you, just repent. Turn. And second, If you are a parent or a grandparent or a friend of a wayward person, refuse to pause. Refuse to quit praying. Say, oh, it doesn't look like it's going to turn around. They have no heart for God. They have no desire for the things of God. They're actually, things are getting actually worse. Keep praying. This is what it looked like for the nation of Israel. And sometimes that's what it takes for God to restore them. Refuse to pause. If God is sovereign over the nation of Israel in the situation of Hosea, he's sovereign over your wayward stories situation. Repent, refuse to pause, and rejoice. Because even in our waywardness, even in our struggle, Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. And so it's true that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Is that what you're doing? Hope in him.
Repent if you need to. Refuse to pause and rejoice in Jesus. Let's pray.